This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Rotherham, the daughter of a steel worker and the first in her family to go to university. Campaigning for the Conservatives, she won a Tory stronghold from Labour in the 2005 general election, therefore becoming MP for Putney. She began politics and opposition, but became a cabinet minister in David Cameron's government and remained there for Theresa May's premiership as education secretary before she left the role. Now having exited Parliament, she is never too far away from politics. She founded the Social Mobility Pledge and even runs her own podcast. She's also the founder of the Purpose Coalition. My guest today is Justine Greening. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Was your childhood a happy one? Yes, I think it was actually. It was a really happy home life. I had parents who were really supportive. I just remember doing lots of stuff that I loved. I mean, I love sport. Probably climbed my fair share of trees at home and it was a happy childhood. And I mentioned also that you're the first in your family to go to university. So was it the case that you were kind of particularly academic or was it more just the opportunities you had growing up were a little bit different? From quite an early age, I suppose I saw my parents struggling with money. I think it became clear to me I was going to have to have a better paid job and that was going to mean education. And I think when I look back on it, I think I'm just a very driven person. And there's definitely something in me that just propels me on somehow. I just thought, I'm going to do something. And I wasn't really sure what that would look like. But I knew that university was probably that next stepping stone. And I went to Southampton at the time. I think my mum thought I was trying to move as far away from Rotherham as I Yeah, how far is that? Well, I mean, literally next stop, France, obviously. (laughs) I went right to the south coast. But... It was, I think it was more about me feeling like I needed to spread my wings and just find out about other people and and other places. And I want to talk about, obviously, your time at university, but just one question before we did is, you've spoken about some of the challenges your dad faced, crossing picket Mm. lines, Mm. um, surrounded by militant Labour members in his role. And and did that shape your politics? I think more than most of us realise those formative years do shape our politics, actually. I remember just thinking, so so when I look back, politics was all around us. I didn't see it as politics because if you were growing up in Rotherham in the 80s, you know, what was going on with the miners, steel workers, was just our day-to-day life. Yeah, and you didn't know any different, right? But I did have a sense that it was shaped by decisions that people were taking, MPs and politics, but others were union people. I felt like my dad got really pushed around by the unions and I just didn't like that. And he had to be on strike, irrespective of whether he wanted to be. It had a massive impact financially on our family. I've always felt that my first economics lesson really was understanding why, because I just remember asking him, why are people on strike? And he'd said to me, oh, because people think they're going to lose their jobs. And I'd said, why? And he said, well, because we're not making any money. And I said, why? And he said, well, nobody really wants to buy what we make anymore. And I just remember thinking he deserves a job that people actually care about. And I think for me, being a conservative was really about facing up to some really difficult issues and confronting them rather than just going, well, well, yeah, but what about everyone? When reality was confronted in the steel industry, everyone lost their jobs. 
Whereas if people had been prepared to actually look at how to make it work earlier, years before, and that's not just unions, but I felt the bosses as well, I think maybe more people would have kept them. And I think it also just gave me a sense of, I didn't really want to be blown around by those economic winds, but I was going to be the person that made that true, not anyone else. So you do that by going to Southampton? Are your parents very proud you're going to university first in the family, or are they more thinking, why have you gone so far away? Well, I think my mum really missed me. I really missed missed all of them as well. But no, I think they were really proud. I, I think I was, it was probably the first time I stepped into a world that they couldn't relate to as much. And I remember saying to my mum, where, where do you think I should go? I remember saying, I don't, I don't know, love, I'm not sure. I can't really tell you. So I think from that moment on, I realised I was going to have to make a lot of my own decisions. So I didn't have this huge family resource around me of a network. And when I think about how much I do on social mobility, it's naturally informed by all of those barriers I've had to overcome to do anything, frankly, with my life. And when you did get to university, did you find, and was everyone quite welcoming? The first thing I discovered was that you didn't say good morning to everyone walking down the street. So I remember getting a few wolf whistles when I'd say good morning to workmen in the street, which is perfectly normal where I'd grown up in Rotherham, but apparently wasn't the done thing in uh, in Southampton. But I really settled in quickly. I absolutely loved the university. I've sort of stayed in touch with it since it's part of my social mobility work now. I was so lucky because I picked a course that I absolutely loved, which was, you know, really economics. So it was a really happy time for me. But yeah, I met all these different people I'd never met before. It was mind-blowing when I look back on it. And did you get at all involved in student politics or...? God, no. No. (laughs) I, I just remember thinking they just... Didn't look fun. Well, they just didn't look normal. And so I just thought, I'm just going to go to my original plan of playing lots of squash and sport and going to the student union bar and occasionally serving behind it, which is exactly what I did. Probably student politics and, and my first sight of it put back my eventual entry into politics by a few years, I'd, I'd say at least. Because you finish university and you go and become a finance manager at Centrica. So I trained at Pricewaterhouse. Right. Yeah. I do that for a few years. I go off and spend a couple of years in Switzerland with okay. them there. And then I come back and I go into industry. And yeah, the final place I worked was at Centrica before becoming an MP. From Lima University, you're earning pretty good money. What was the finance world and kind of your experience like then? I mean, I think what was interesting to me was I'd always had in my mind that once I got in, you know, my finances would be better. And I think what was really a shock in a sense was I suddenly found at the beginning I had to buy all these work suits I had to get a car I remember having to go to the bank manager and sort out a loan and all sorts of things that I wasn't expecting but yeah you know I just climbed the career ladder really and and that was all all going pretty well and then I got into my I did an MBA so I was I was all dead set you know powering ahead on this uh, career in industry and then there was this little bit of me that became a bigger bit of me that just thought so I've done all this. It didn't quite give me the food for my soul somehow. I, I thought that that's what would make me happy. And, and I began to realise that for me as a person, there were other things that were on my mind almost that I, I was interested in. And is that around the point you start thinking about making politics a career? I can see I'm definitely conservative. I can see things going really badly wrong for the Conservative Party. Funny that. And and so I just think, right, we are going to get hammered 
this is back in the run up to the 97 election. I thought we're going to get hammered. <laughs> we'll add the parallels later. <laughs> but but I also thought I believe in democracy and I believe in choice and I just yeah. thought eventually Eventually, I thought, however long it takes, people will want a choice. So I ring up Epping Forest Conservatives and I say, do you need any leafleters, of course? So on my first election was that 97 election and I'm out knocking on doors and everyone else in the team hates it and I quite enjoy it because I'm just a fundamentally quite nosy person. <laughs> so I, I sort of took to it like a yeah. duck to water, And really. I suppose when you're going out handing out leaflets in 1997, because perhaps some thinking about handing out leaflets in this election may be listening, could you just tell... It wasn't going very well. Absolutely. Yeah. And what, I mean, what are the giveaway signs? I used to go out leafleting with the absolutely lovely James Brokenshire, who was a good friend of mine and was also in the same association. And we used to leaflet our way out of these Harlow council estates. So bad sign was Labour leaflets in the window. We learnt to start at the top of a tower block and come out so that you could always kind of go out through an exit. You were never going to get trapped by angry people. But I, I, think, I think I learnt... A lot, though, I used that election to find out why they thought a change was needed. And, and I felt if we were ever going to get back into power that we had to confront what people thought rather than just keep on telling them that they were wrong. So you've gone through that stage. And then at what point do you start to think, I actually would like to be an MP? Does someone suggest it to you? So one year, I mean, I'm probably the only person in the association who's under 60 at least at one point. They instantly ask me to stand for, for council and, and I say, go on then, okay, what do I have to do? Leafleting, great. I thought, okay, I can do that. I'm busy at work one day and Valerie rings up and says, this is a woman in the office. Justine, we, we've got to get your leaflet done. Can you send us a photo? I rustle around in the desk by me and I find this passport photo and I put it on, send it over. I thought, I'm that's just going to have to do. Anyway, these leaflets look like I am someone out of the bar of Meinhof you know, like the red, great. I, I really don't look like the kind of person you would come and ask for help. So the next year that they said, do you want to give it another go? I thought, I better. I just felt I owed them something. Yeah. So I got a nice photo done, did lots of knocking on doors, and then people actually voted for me. And this is 1998, so you can yeah. imagine it was a shock. It was a big turning point. So I absolutely loved being a local councillor and I'd go along to these things I'd get stuff sorted I just really enjoyed working with people locally and they seemed to enjoy what I was doing and, and meeting me and so I remember somebody saying have you ever thought about running for parliament and I just thought I mean no one in my family had ever joined a political party let alone become a, a councillor let alone run for parliament so to say it wasn't in my frame of thinking is the understatement. So it's sort of, so my original decision, Katie, was I just thought, why don't I just run for parliament? I thought that'll be part of democracy, giving people a choice is what I'm trying to do here. That was the first thing I did. And then I really enjoyed that. And then I thought, okay, I'll do this seriously and see how it goes. And obviously in that selection, was it tough to be selected as an MP for Putney or as a candidate? Or? See, right now it's Labour, but you had a very long stretch. So was it, I imagine... So it had, it had yeah. swung around with, with the government, really. So yeah. David Miller had won it in 79, a Conservative MP. He'd lost it in 97. I think the association was hoping they'd win it back in 2001, and they hadn't. I got to that final selection, and I was up against Edward Lister, actually, who later became Deputy Mayor of London and Boris's right-hand right man. man. Yeah. So I assumed... Yeah. They were going to pick him. But I did kind of think, well, I suppose if they want something a bit different, 
I would be that candidate. If they wanted like some fresh-faced, different person. And I'd run the election before in Ealing Act to Shepherds Bush, got what I w- thought at the time was a really paltry swing. So I worked really hard, got to election night, it was 3% towards the Tories. And I thought, oh, all that effort. Yeah. At which point someone went, actually 3% is about 3% better than anyone else in London, Justine. So, so I thought, oh, I'll do it anyway. So I did become the candidate. I worked really hard and we did win. And you even, I think, and obviously in that 2005 election, it was, that was when you first came mm. Obviously, still a tough night for the Tories. It was, mm-hmm. you know, beginning of the road to recovery, but it wasn't a win. You won the big success stories almost, I think. I think I was the first seat that we won because it's an urban seat. Yeah. They get all the ballots back to the town hall really quick and then they're very efficient in ones with full stop so it felt like an eternity as the only Tory MP whilst all these Labour MPs from the north were getting steadily more and, then, and more announced. And I right to say Michael Howard then came to your seat also that was when Promptly he said he resigned was, yeah. Yeah so, so all of a sudden you were just like well you're stealing my thunder mate. <laughs> I was like you come here. <laughs> I thought you were congratulating me. To bed. Now I've you're been quitting. been organising this thing for you all night. Got everyone round, and what have you done? I thought you resign right at the side of me. But anyway, no, I did understand. I think it it was a warning sign that the roller coaster. Did you know he was going to resign? I did because I probably quite rudely was reading over his shoulder as he turned the page. And we it was all do it. Down oh, is that I, how you found out? That's oh. how I found out, and I had to keep my face. Did you gasp? No, no, because I... Because you're actually very well trained by this point, yeah. I'm very well trained, and I just thought, oh. (laughs) I I can see what's coming. I know what's coming. Okay, that's quite stressful. (laughs) Um, So you enter Parliament, of course, it's, uh, you know, you're in opposition. Mm -hmm. Does anything particularly surprise you when you finally get there? Well, I remember going to my first 1922 committee and thinking, oh my God, this is why. We've been losing elections and thinking, oh, we've got a long way so to go. In terms of like the demographic or the conversations or... Just a bit of everything, really. When you're in opposition, people actually don't think you're ready to go into government. And Michael Howard had run this campaign, which if you remember, Katie, was a whole load of posters saying, are you thinking what we're thinking? And basically people had said, not really. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you have to sort of out perform all of that to still persuade people to vote Conservative, I just went in thinking, oh God, no wonder we've lost. At what point do you come across David Cameron and obviously the efforts between David Cameron and George Osborne? And when when you see that happening, do you start to think that that is actually the move we need towards, you know, more modern conservatism? I think when I look back to that leadership contest, it happened before I'd even really found my feet, if I'm yeah. absolutely honest. Because it must have been so quick and then you suddenly, yeah. I was literally coping with being a, a new MP and it was a brand new world. And when you win a seat, especially back then, there wasn't really much support, frankly. You had to order all your office stuff, get your staff recruited, the casework is flooding in. And then you've got this leadership contest and somehow you're there as a new MP thinking oh god I'm I'm meant to pick the right person because apparently if I don't pick the right person it you know what happens then and I just thought I haven't got a clue I don't know any of these people how am I meant to possibly work out who's best for the party so no it would just it was just another thing to have to try and navigate your way through 2010 is when the conservatives get back to government through a coalition Mm -hmm. but what were there were there any particular indicators in the kind of 
years building up to that election where you start to think we have a really good chance. People had fallen out of love with Labour. Gordon Brown, when he took over from Blair. I think sometimes governments just get into a position where they're just making errors and it it almost seems like nothing ever goes right. I could also feel that, yeah, I'd felt frustrated with the parliamentary party when I went in. We got ourselves together. Do you think there was a hunger to win? Yeah, totally. And that same single-mindedness that we'd had as a team in Putney. I think there was that same sense of hunger in the parliamentary party. And and I think this sense of Britain has to be able to do better and we, we have to be able to give people some better choices. That's our responsibility. And that's that's what we were gunning for, really, and, and working really hard on. That's what I was focused on, anyway. Do you see that in the Labour Party now? I'm just wondering, because they've been so long out when you look at Labour MPs, or, or not so much, yeah? I think I have seen it. Yeah. And I think there does come a time in opposition where maybe there's some in the party that are quite comfortable, because that's what they're used to. But there's probably more people who are just absolutely fed up and I remember doing the Companies Act bill the standing bill as a a new MP and I was on it for months and Margaret Hodge only accepted one amendment in that entire time of being on the committee I mean we're talking probably weeks not hours but you know it's soul destroying and really you want to be in government now 2010 election talks soon after but there's a conservative Lib Dem coalition were you quite welcoming with that what did you think about the conservatives going to agree with liberal democrats because when I look at your politics now I think you're very much seen as um sitting on the spectrum where actually potentially you'll see some of the pluses in it I think in politics there's this phrase I I came across when I was development secretary African phrase and it was if you want to go go fast go alone but if you want to go far go together there were three main parties if two of them agreed And the other one had just been thrown out by the electorate. You'd probably got a workable plan. And at the time, it felt necessary, actually, because of some really difficult decisions on public finances in the wake of that 2010 financial crisis. So the British public, in their millions, make these votes and and they all add up. And I think in a weird way, it added up to probably forcing two parties to have to work through a really difficult set of challenges together and and I think it was probably better for that. I think at the time people you know it is not said oh I think the this coalition part's gonna go quite well (laughs) but it but it looks as though that was a period where where quite a bit was achieved do you know if you think about some of the later stages what I wonder what you think and obviously you held some big briefs in that period I should say you know transport international development it's really interesting to reflect on it as well because in a sense yeah 14 years five of them were in coalition David Cameron had one of them on his own as prime minister really and then the rest of them post-Brexit. So you've really had these different incarnations of a so-called 14-year Conservative administration, and I think they were really very different versions of it. So, But in the coalition, I think there were a lot of those moving parts that were put in place, because actually for them to have any longevity, you needed other parties on board, and, and we had to do that in government. And when you were International Development Secretary, do you think it helped you in terms of, I'm just thinking now to where we are in international development in the sense Mm. it's obviously folded into the Foreign Office, the budget has been reduced. Do you think you had more scope of focus on your department because perhaps David Cameron, of course, very pro-international development, but 
also the Liberal Democrats very pro. I think I was able to really get on with the agenda. Yeah. And so we had a real clear sense of priorities, which were around humanitarian support, economic development, and then gender equality and the fact that countries don't develop if half the population is locked out of that. So I think we were able to have an exceptionally clear agenda and then we were able to really pursue it in the UN and and so we were so involved in shaping the sustainable development goals. I think now it's just a very, very different positioning of both development and what was differed. But I don't think, for me, it's a sort of positive shift in the sense that, you know, it's when you don't support people in refugee camps and areas of crisis, that's when they can't stay there. They move when the support goes. And I met very few refugees who wanted to do anything other than go home. And so those decisions that people are making to shift across countries and continents aren't ones they want to do. It's a hell of a lot more expensive supporting people once they arrive here than it ever is supporting them to stay where they want to stay which is at home and do you think the budget cuts had a big impact on that just in the sense that david cameron for example was vocal against it now he's foreign secretary he's obviously accepted it you know begrudgingly and i think you, the line you'll hear from him and some others is you know they wouldn't have wanted to make the decision but they're sympathetic to why you know if there wasn't much money that was one of the areas that went i think it is what it is yeah. in the end i think if you believe in leveling up I believe it in leveling up at home but I believe in leveling up abroad and I think you know if you want to really combat migration then you have to play a role in helping countries create more of their own opportunities that's why we were so focused on economic development it was why we were so focused on countries being more open so women could grow economies too and have have a have a life now, as you say, one year of David Cameron with full majority, and that meant a referendum. When you first went into politics, did you imagine Brexit, a European policy, would dominate the time as much as it ended up doing? Never, Katie. I don't think anyone could quite have predicted what would happen. And if you like the fact that it's a process that we're still in even now. When David Cameron made that pledge, obviously you're in his cabinet to say, did you think it was a good idea at the time? Or did you, did you think, oh, hopefully it should be final? I didn't think it was a good idea, no. Yeah. But I also recognised it was something that was a promise, that now we were in government on our own. It was a promise we had to we had to meet, so... And then everything, as you were just talking about earlier, in, like, in the sense, it's 14 years, but yet it doesn't quite feel like one harmonious period, perhaps. So this is when, okay, so leave wins, you back to remain. We end up in a situation where Theresa May takes over. She makes you education secretary. How are you feeling at this point about, uh, you know, where the Conservative Party is going? I'm feeling that we've just taken a monumental decision as a country. I have just got the job that I always wanted to do. And did you think you had the scope to do the reform you wanted once it started? Or as I would imagine from an outside perspective, there was clearly Brexit dominating Mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. And then you also had very early on reports that Theresa May is quite controlling advisors. Perhaps, you know, her number 10 in general meant the minister did not feel as though they had much space. They were very controlling. And I think the mistake was to try and run government like they ran Home Office. Yeah. I also felt that plus Brexit slightly meant I could just get on with things. And so, <laughs> so within a few weeks, I'd announced opportunity areas that actually went on to do very well. These were, these were specific 
communities where we were really going to focus on education improvement, bring people together. In spite of everything, actually, I had more leeway to just crack on and we'd, we'd launched a social mobility action plan and, you know, we weren't in Parliament doing education bills that we didn't need to do, although we did have some. So, no, um, for me as a time, it was exceptionally busy, I remember, but I just thought nobody does any of these jobs forever and I, I really didn't waste a moment. There was also focus on grammar schools around then, wasn't there? There was. And, yeah. and in a sense, that's one of the distractions, I guess, I was talking about. I mean, it was obvious to me that you needed a, an education bill and it was never going to get through Parliament. Yes, we had lots of meetings with it, about it with Theresa May and I tried to explain on multiple times to her and her advisors that I thought wasn't a snowball's chance in hell that a bill would get through Parliament but I was able to get on with putting social mobility at the heart of the Department for Education. Um, because then in a reshuffle you, were, you ended up leaving that role. I'm always fascinated, as I think listeners are too, about how these things happen on reshuffle day, because it's obviously very easy to say a reshuffle has gone wrong, but I would have thought perhaps you tee people up in advance to check where they're willing to go yeah, and yeah. what they're willing to do. Because on the day, if there's a bit of a pause, everyone starts saying, you know, X. So what happened on the day? So I'd made it really clear that I didn't want to go. They had, yeah. to my mind, quite stupidly briefed out that they were probably going to reshuffle me. And I just thought, well don't tell me in advance. I mean, that gives me all sorts of time to think, what yeah. What am I going to do? And I just thought, well, look, I thought I've had three cabinet jobs. I am using this phrase, levelling up, because I think it is hugely important. And actually, that social mobility action plan I did for Theresa May's government, the forward, if you read it, says, problem with Britain is talent spread evenly, but opportunity is not. I thought that's a really good phrase. I quite like how it encapsulates what we've got to do. And I talk about levelling up Britain. And so it's there in her Copy inbox. Right. There we go, yeah. I've launched it and it's in her <laughs> inbox. All this rhetoric <laughs> that I felt quite powerfully communicated yeah. to people what needed to change about Britain. And I just realised I felt so strongly about it that I wasn't going to allow whether or I was in cabinet or not to get in the way. I remember tweeting out saying social mobility matters more to me than my next role in cabinet and so within eight weeks I'd launched the social mobility pledge set off on that journey and absolutely no regrets at all and I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we're doing collectively on it. Do you think ministers move around briefs too much? Prime ministers are always going to do reshuffles but I think people do move far too often. It's impossible to have a policy approach that really drives change on the ground which is what this is all about if Every couple of years, someone's coming in thinking, right, I need to work out my strategy. And politics has to deliver for people. And one of the reasons I stepped outside Parliament ultimately was because I just thought it's not driving enough change. And it's a bit like me leaving Cabinet. You know, I left because I thought I have to work on this overridingly important issue for Britain that really matters to me personally and that was the same reason why I stepped out of Parliament. The Theresa May Premiership, obviously, is because you left your role. It started to go downhill. Um. <laughs> no, I mean, the funny thing is, it did actually go really badly wrong from the moment I'd left it. I felt like it was a bit like that scene, out, the last scene out of Thelma and Louise, only I jumped out of the car just before it went off the cliff. And eventually, Theresa May, as listeners will know, pushed out. Boris Johnson comes in, takes on your levelling up agenda, but is not quite your cup of tea, I think it's fair to say. 
No, I don't think that's true, actually. I'm thinking about the Brexit vote, but that's... Yeah, so yeah. we didn't agree on so, Brexit, but obviously. But otherwise, you think your politics is quite... We yeah. didn't agree on Brexit, but I knew... I know Boris very well through the time he spent as yeah. London mayor, and we campaigned together on, you know, I guess the third row might he throw. So actually, during the leadership campaign, I remember going to see him and the other candidates, and I thought, there's no point talking about Brexit. But what I can do is influence the domestic agenda. And so I remember talking to all of them about levelling up and social mobility and... Do you think, did you give Boris, Boris, the, Boris was, the phrase or did he, does he already have it? He certainly didn't have it at that time, but he was the only one. I think one. you need to correct some of these vote leave boys who. Ah, uh, well, I think, I think they'll find if they go back to maybe 2015 and a. Yeah, this is your next nice Guardian independent, piece. Independent, independent uh, interview <laughs> that I gave before the party conference. I'll talk about levelling up Britain and that. So a little bit before Boris's time, but the key thing was. He absolutely got that issue of social mobility and levelling up and put it centre stage. And he was completely right to do that. So as much as we disagreed on Brexit, we agreed on levelling up and still do. And I think one of the reasons you've got the Conservative Party in such difficulties today is I I think under Rishi Sunak's leadership, it it stepped back from that levelling up and that social mobility push. And I think that's a huge mistake. When you look at what's happened to the Tory party since you've left government, I mean, some would say Rishi Sunak is doing the best he can and what he's inherited, but would you disagree with that? Yeah, I would, actually. I think that if you are going to change Britain, you have to have a real sense of purpose. And I, I don't know what that sense of purpose is, and I don't know what that plan is. And I think it's unrealistic to think you can go to the Conservative Party conference last year and, and apparently completely reinvent yourself. I don't think that was ever going to wash. So I think it's decisions like that that... But in the meantime, this underlying issue that went hand in hand with Brexit, arguably, this issue of take back control, which I, for me is what social mobility is really all about. It's the fact that people don't feel like they are in control. They don't think that effort really leads to reward. People don't see that sense of urgency from the party to really drive change in communities like the one I grew up in in Rotherham. That's what I work on every day. I'm frustrated that the party feels like the leadership has stepped away from that and almost said, oh, because it's something that Boris Johnson did, therefore it's bad. But actually, Boris was spot on about levelling up and the party is only ever one big when it's focused on aspiration, social mobility, levelling up, equality of opportunity. And why did I ever become a Conservative in Rotherham? You know, I was a probably a Red Wall Conservative decades before the current crop, well, it was because I believe in effort and reward and and I I believe in a version of Britain with equality of opportunity. We've never had it. It's now time to create that version of Britain. And if that's not a mission to buy into, I don't know what is. And I think a lot in the party still want that. And my worry for the next election is actually many of the MPs that are really like-minded with someone like me on this are the very ones growing up, you know, who, who were in the represented the communities like the one I grew up in? They'll be the ones that leave. But actually, in, in many respects, that levelling up agenda—that's the path back to any real permission, I think, to get back into power again. What do you think is the most, as someone who cares about this, the most realistic way to get it to where you're talking about in the time between now and an election? I don't think you have to change the leader for the Conservative Party to get back on track with levelling up social mobility, whether you call it Labour's breaking down barriers. They are in government and you can put an agenda in place. 
But I do think that the party can't bump along at 20% in the polls. I can understand why there are some in the party who are so frustrated. The problem is that for the for the public on the outside, changing leader again just makes it look like a basket case. This is a party in government, not one in opposition. And with that, I'm going to ask you a slightly lighter question. Which is the final question we ask <laughs> okay. everyone in this podcast, which is just, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Oh, probably was the advice that when I was transport secretary, it'd be really good photo op to go up that crane at Felix Stowen land a container <laughs> which I discovered I'd, I suffer from vertigo <laughs> when I was already heading up it in the lift that you got in after you went up the stairs and there were lots of stairs and then I had to get into this big crate that I thought if as long as I get into that pod where they do the driving I thought I'll be safe then and I got into it and it had a perspex floor because of course you needed to see through and so I then actually had to do the moving of a crate I'm sure that there must have been a whole group of people who got washing machines that that you know the thing didn't spin properly and they were like never knew really what happened there was a whole batch that just didn't work. Um, anyway, I think it was me. But okay. um, So that was bad advice. So they can file their lawsuits now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for joining today. 